I started doing stand-up when I was in dental school, and a classmate of mine stopped me in the hallway and asked me once uh, if I thought, you know, comedy comes from pain. Uh, does comedy come from pain? That's a common question, you know, are, are comedians troubled people? It's this weird irony, you know, like the, the saddest people can be the funniest. Um, tears of a clown when there's no one around is the cliche, you know. It makes perfect sense, like, why this is the case once you understand the mechanics of comedy and joke writing. But it, it does seem odd on the surface. I think most people would, would agree it's a weird contrast initially. I didn't have the confidence to answer my friend at the time because uh, the answer was yes. Uh, but the other thing about comedians is we don't like admitting that we're sad. <laughs> That's why we get on stage and act happy. You know, we're trying to move, you know, get past the sad stuff. We don't like it. You know, people don't react well when we show the sadness, typically. So it's like a compensation mechanism. That's why we save the tears for when there's, there's no one around, you know. Show them the happy face, then maybe the sadness will goes away, you know. That's the strategy, I think, for most comedians. I don't know. Even when we do show sadness on stage, we tend to immediately flip it into a joke. You know, we don't, we don't end on a sad note. You know, by definition, that isn't really, that's not, it's not pure comedy to, to do that. Like if you, if you go back to Greek tragedy, you know, versus Greek comedy, tragedy has a sad ending. Comedy has a happy ending. That's the, that's the definitional difference between comedy and tragedy. You know, how the stories or plays are structured. That, that's the fundamental difference. Tragedy, sad ending, comedy, happy ending. And really it's, you know, it's no different with jokes. So I said something to my classmate like, yeah, that's, that's definitely a common theme uh, for comedians to have some kind of pain, you know, they struggle with in their lives that helps motivate them toward comedy or gives them that sort of, you know, personality disposition. But uh, I didn't open up <laughs> about my, my personal motivations for getting into comedy. Because uh, like I said, I didn't have the confidence for that level of honesty with, you know, a friend who's kind of an acquaintance also, not like a close friend, you know, off stage. Uh, there, there's some advice uh, in writing stand-up. I don't remember exactly where I picked this up, but it's in my little comedy advice notes that I reference when I'm, when I'm writing my, uh, my jokes. The idea is no one wants to hear about what you like, right? Comedy is pain, it's struggle, you know, you don't want to ask what's funny to me. You should instead ask yourself, what bothers me? What frustrates me? What do I wish I could change? What can I simply not stand? And then, you know, you stand up and then you talk about it. That's, that's the whole stand-up thing. That's the process, you know? That, that's, that's more interesting to people, right? People don't want to hear about how lovely your life is. That's not funny. Comedy is this wonderful transmutation of pain into joy, right? It's a magic trick that relies on, you know, like slight shifts in perspective, sort of well-timed flips in how you look at something, you know, your, your angle of approach. It's really interesting because when you study the physiology of pain perception, you learn about how so much of it, of, of pain, 
is in our subjective control. You know, pain signals are ultimately felt or they're, they're regulated in the cortex of our brain. The cortex is the most recently evolved, the most recently developed region of our brain. We're pretty sure it's responsible for why we're conscious as humans. For us human beings, large aspects of our pain experience are a subjective experience. Subjective means we can manipulate it, right? It's not objective, it's not set in stone. We can manipulate it consciously. You know, that's how you can get things like Buddhist monks dousing themselves in gasoline and burning themselves alive without flinching, right? That's how that's possible. There is a very literal mind over matter aspect to pain. Your brain doesn't have to accept that pain inputs coming from the rest of your body have to be interpreted as painful. It's really trippy, but that's kind of how it works. And comedy plays in that same space, sort of our modulation of our pain experience via input from the cortical layer of our brain. Hopefully none of this is getting too crazy for anyone or too heady. I think it's crazy interesting. That's why I'm talking about it. I listened to this excellent audiobook. Would recommend it to anyone. Uh, it's called Wonderworks by Angus Fletcher. So Dr. Fletcher, he's a professor of story science at Ohio State University. And he's working on something called Project Narrative. Crazy interesting. Uh, I'll put links to that in the video description if you want. Super, super interesting stuff. So he wrote this proof, uh, little side note, he wrote this proof about how computers can't think narratively and how that puts a hard cap on the artificial intelligence capabilities of robots. So like humans, we think in narrative, we think in story because of how the animal neuron, you know, neurons, this, the cellular units of our nervous system, those function fundamentally differently on a hardware level from computer hardware. So that leads to fundamental differences with very far-reaching consequences in how computers and robots function versus how human beings function. You know, everybody, everybody worries about, you know, robots taking over the world. You know, I, I always thought that was a little silly because robots don't have an underlying motivation structure, right? They don't have a hypothalamus in their brain telling them to seek out food and sex, you know, the way that humans do. The hypothalamus, that's the source of our basic, like fundamental motivations in life. Computers don't have that. So you have to tell a computer what to do. You have to give it a goal. It doesn't come up with its own goals. But anyway, uh, Dr. Fletcher has this very interesting discussion of story science and how it relates to artificial intelligence, project narrative. Go check that out if you're into computer science, uh, AI, biology, psychology, neurology, literature, you know, all those fun things that, that go well in combination. Sidebar, I just want to tell people about that because I think it's so cool. But anyway, getting back to what I'm trying to talk about, uh, Dr. Fletcher, he wrote this book, Wonderworks, and it's all about the psychological and emotional effects of literature. And I think it's such a refreshing way to approach stories. Like, if... If you didn't like literary analysis in school, you know, where you try to pick the themes out of a story, you know, what was the author trying to say here? What were the logical stances being put forward by this work of art? So Fletcher, uh, Angus Fletcher, doesn't approach stories that way. He's like, uh, forget that, That's we don't care about that. What he's interested in is 
the emotional effects of stories. And he ties those emotional effects in with what is happening inside the human mind on the neurological level. So, you know, like what areas of the brain are being activated when we read or hear certain stories? What effect does that have on us emotionally, right? And it's interesting because this stuff is somewhat predictable. You can, literature can almost be like a form of medicine. So chapter 23 of Wonderworks is very relevant to this discussion of pain and comedy. The chapter is called Unfreeze Your Heart, Alison Bechdel, Euripides, Samuel Beckett, T.S. Eliot, and the Invention of the Clinical Joy. What a title for a chapter. So here, Dr. Fletcher talks about tragicomedy as a genre. So this is a, a mashup of the genres of tragedy and comedy. It doesn't follow the tradition in Greek tragedy or Greek comedy exclusively. Tragicomedy plays with elements of both. This is a genre that's become very popular in television in, la in the last 15 years or so. You know, the term dramedy gets thrown around a lot. You get these serious shows with bits of comedy and absurdism thrown in. You know, it's a genre that's been around for a very long time, but I think it's become, in my very uninformed opinion, it's become much more popular than it used to be. You know, it didn't used to be as relatable for audiences. Uh, I think it's a bit more of an acquired taste. It's more complicated in some ways, but it's definitely become more ubiquitous, and I think people have gotten used to it, you know. Um, so anyway, Dr. Fletcher, he traces the origins of tragicomedy to the Greek playwright Euripides, Euripides uh, and he talks about how Samuel Beckett and T.S. Eliot wrote plays after World War II that had strong tragicomic elements, and he discusses Alison Bechdel's work. Uh, she's a cartoonist who works with darker themes for comic effect. So in all of this, he points out how tragicomedy can actually help people work through PTSD, which I think is so interesting and cool. Um, there's different subtypes of PTSD. So like if you experience something horrific, it can cause a very strong emotionally hyperactive response when you recall that memory. Or you can react with numbness you can sort of go emotionally dead inside. Those are sort of the two types of PTSD that they are, the two ways you can have a hyperactive emotional response to a traumatic event. And the emotional deadening is regulated by our frontal cortex. Again, that's the topmost layer of our brain, the logical part of our brain, the part of our brain that evolved most recently. So the frontal cortex basically tells our limbic areas of the brain, these are our underlying emotional brain areas responsible for our emotions. The frontal cortex tells those areas to shut down if something is too painful. Frontal cortex basically just says, limbic system, play dead. This hurts too much, pretend like this never happened, go numb. So you, you get this sort of internal dissociation from yourself. And there's two types of dissociation. One, there's depersonalization. That's when our thoughts and feelings feel unreal. You know, sort of like ghosts inside our mind that we don't feel directly related to. And then there's derealization. And that's when the outside world doesn't seem genuine. You know, sort of like a, like a dream that we're just sort of drifting through, but, but not connected to. So with Greek tragedy, Dr. Fletcher discusses tragedy as a literary form that helped people deal with the first type of PTSD, 
that sort of emotionally hyperactive response. When you watch a tragic play together with others, the audience is exposed to trauma in what is otherwise a safe environment, you know, potentially surrounded by friends and family. It's a form of exposure therapy to try to sort out that traumatic event, right, in a safe environment, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy in that vein. But then uh, Euripides sort of flips this on its head a bit with his tragic comedies. With tragedy, you know, we feel connected to everyone around us. There's a sort of shared social support in experiencing the play and the trauma to the characters in the play. We experience that all together. With tragic comedy, things get a little weirder, right? It actually heightens our self-awareness, right? It makes us look more inwardly and assess our own feelings even more. We don't get an obvious answer from the play itself. It just makes us assess whether the behavior is funny or tragic. You know, is this hilarious or sad? It's ambiguous. We're kind of unsure. And so we have to pause and think more about what we're seeing and experiencing with this type of literature. The psychological neural effect in our brain is that this actually helps alleviate the numbness of type 2 PTSD because it helps us relax our emotional break on our limbic system, right? The frontal cortex was telling the limbic system, shut down, shut down, shut down. Tragicomedy invites us to reevaluate our feelings in this weird situation. And it opens us back up to feeling something again in this subtle kind of backdoor bizarre way, you know? What am I feeling about this weird, tragic, strange, funny thing? What am I feeling and why? So unlike a classic tragedy that triggers raw emotion in our limbic system, Euripides' tragic comedy inspires a sort of meta feeling in our frontal cortex. Instead of our frontal cortex telling our emotions not to exist, our frontal cortex starts looking at the emotions and asking why we have them. And if the tragicomedy is funny enough and prompts us to not only evaluate our complex emotions more in depth, but actually laugh as well, that loosens up our emotions and engages us with them even more. So we're able to be less emotionally numb. Another one of the works uh, discussed in the chapter is Samuel Beckett's play, uh, Waiting for Godot. I haven't read it yet. Uh, I have it on my nightstand, but uh, I, haven't, I haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, I've read a bit about it. It seems a little on the nose, but, you know, waiting for Godot, waiting for God. You know, God never shows up. There's no deus ex machina at the end of the play that results in a happy ending. So you're left with this weird limbo situation. You know, nothing too bad is happening. Nothing too good is happening. There's a barren tree in photos I've seen of the play. That's, I guess that's pretty easily seen as a substitute, you know, for the tree in the Garden of Eden. You know, why can't we return to paradise? Life is so darn hard. Where's our happy ending? You know, we're just stuck waiting around absurdly in modern times, post-death of God and all that stuff. Can we do anything about this condition or do we just have to sit and wait, right? Is there an alternative to just waiting around for some miracle to come rescue us from our existential meandering, right? That's, that's the tragicomic, that's the tragicomic element of, of waiting for Godot. What, one of the miracles of comedy to me is that you can get redemption for suffering, small or large, 
by making something funny with it, right? Like when you're ready, when you've processed something and you've moved through it to some extent, then you can try to write something funny about, you know, your mistakes, setbacks, or even tragedies, even, you know, existential, you know, angst and, and the tragedy of that. Personally, I think the best comedy is not escapism. It's not a running away from, it's a way of facing and processing real pain. It helps you move forward. It's, it's an initial step back toward joy. There's a, there's a related quote I like, what you most want to find will be found where you least want to look. The brightest lights are in the darkest places. You know, there's a, there's a band I like, uh, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. First of all, how's that for a band name? You know, like, hello, I'm Nathaniel Rateliff and these are the Night Sweats. <laughs> Couldn't we just be like the cool guys? <laughs> Nathaniel Rateliff and the cool fellas, the hip bros. No, uh, you're the night sweats and you'll like it. So anyway, they have this song, uh, it's called Say It Louder. And one of the lyrics is, uh, they say sometimes what you need is exactly what you fear. You know, you've got to go into the dark, scary place before you can run out of there laughing like a crazy maniac. The definition of Greek tragedy is that it has an unhappy ending, and Greek comedy has a happy ending. You know, we're talking about literature, uh, you can actually look at the biblical story of Jesus this way, right? It doesn't matter if you believe in anything Christianity or not, like the, the story structure of Jesus suffering and then coming back is sort of this ultimate uh, transformation story, right? The story of Jesus is supposed to be completely unbelievable and ridiculous. It's not supposed to make sense to go into your own death voluntarily and then come out of it. Like, that's supposed to be a shock and a surprise that a human being could possibly do such a thing. It's not supposed to make sense. And jokes have a similar structure, right? Jokes are sort of like little unexpected mini miracles, you know? They lead you into this dark or painful corner and then flip the script, right? Something better rises out of the ashes somewhat miraculously and unexpectedly. That's very appealing to our brains, to our little animal neuron conglomerations up there. <laughs> like part of the reason the Jesus story I think is so popular is that what's darker than death itself? Like what's a better comeback story? You know, we, we love a comeback story. We can hardly believe it when some poor schlub carpenter ends up being the son of God. What? <laughs> that sounds like a joke. You know, this guy, he's a, he's a carpenter going around telling people he's the son of God just because he knows the Torah better than everybody. Come on. <laughs> you know, just because he feeds people with extra fish, just because he can walk on water, just because he can heal the blind. Where's this wacko think he is? He's friends with tax collectors, for God's sake. What a bomb! What a bomb! But we like that story. We're very into that story. Not everybody, but a lot of people. It resonates. It's weird and ridiculous and unexpected and horrible, yet ultimately hopeful, all at the same time. You know, it's a very extreme life for someone to live, but we want that kind of life. You know, we want to be the nameless carpenter who figures out how to defy gravity and overcome death. You know, those are the kind of whacked out aspirations we have as human beings. 
right? Because life is painful. We get reminded of that all the time. And wouldn't it be cool if we could flip all that awkward, awful, dark pain into something redeeming and uplifting and beautiful? So convert to Christianity. No, I'm kidding. Uh, please don't do that. I'm only discussing uh, Jesus' story, Jesus' story as, as a work of literature, as a story structure. Uh, what is the psychological impact of that story? This is not an evangelical video, all right? But uh, yeah, jokes are little miniature versions of the resurrection story of Jesus. <laughs> That's why comedy comes from pain. How about that? That's it. You've reached the end of the episode. Welcome to the podcast outro. An outro is the opposite of an intro. Kind of like an innie versus an outie when it comes to belly buttons. Comedy Obsessed, a podcast featuring Mike Frank of anotherlazymillennial.com. If you haven't figured it out, this is a podcast about stand-up comedy. I'm a stand-up comic. I don't think stand-up is well understood by that many people. Comedy nerds like me, you know, we respect it as an art form. Lots of other people have a rather low opinion of it. I understand why. You know, there's lots of rough, bad, gross, disappointing comedy out there. I've made plenty of it. But I also don't think that that low opinion of the art of comedy is justifiable. I think stand-up is a beautiful, challenging, rewarding, complex art form that deserves as much respect as any other performing art. It's incredibly impressive when someone is able to write and perform stand-up that is wildly funny and even simultaneously insightful. I'm not saying that happens all the time or even the majority of the time, but when it does happen, I think it's incredible. So this is a podcast where I discuss my own struggles with trying to do that incredible thing. I'm going to talk about my experience, what I've learned over the years writing and performing stand-up, things I've picked up on to try to do it better, nuances to the art form you can't fully appreciate until you've actually experienced them in some capacity, but I'm still, probably futilely, going to try to relate those lessons to others interested in stand-up, whether you've done it or not. I'm a bit of a nerd, I've got a background in philosophy from when I was in college, I also maintain a deep interest in psychology and neuroscience. I poke around in economics, history, and literature. There's a list of book recommendations on my website that you can check out if you're interested in any of those things. Weirdly enough, I find ways for these subjects to inform my understanding of stand-up. Hopefully, you find the discussion of these ideas to be as satisfying to your own curiosity as I have to mine. I should also mention that I'm a dentist. That's my day job. I have a YouTube channel where I'm trying to teach people how to take care of their teeth and improve their oral health. Oral health, that's mouth health. I want to help you with your mouth health because I think that our healthcare system is failing and I don't think that trends within the industry are heading in a good direction. I don't think I can really reverse those trends with anything I do working as a dentist. And you might be thinking, how are YouTube videos supposed to help people improve their dental health? 
Preventative medicine. It's the most powerful weapon we've got to reverse the healthcare crisis in America. I truly believe that. I'm trying to make a positive contribution to that struggle. So you can find me on YouTube. My channel is Another Lazy Millennial. It's all one word when you search it. Google will ask you if you meant Another Lazy Millennial as three separate words, and you can defiantly state to Google, no, I meant it as one word because I want to find Mike Frank's YouTube channel. Thank you very much. That's what you should tell Google. Uh, there's dental stuff there. There's stand-up stuff there. I'm a weirdo, but I've decided I'm finally committed to being me instead of hiding what I'm really like. So congratulations. This is me, y'all. My website is anotherlazymillennial.com. If you give me your email address on that website, I'll be sure to keep you up to date about future comedy tours and projects I hope to create. You can find me on Instagram at Comedic Exposure. That's C-O-M-E-D-I-C-E-X-P-O-S-U-R-E, Comedic Exposure. I take photos of comics there. I'll be posting stand-up clips there. I'll also likely be posting clips out of this podcast there. I'm on TikTok at Mike underscore the underscore dentist, as well as a separate TikTok account where I'll be posting stand-up clips at Mike Frank Comedy. That's M-I-K-E. F-R-A-N-K-E comedy. All right. Thanks for listening. Honestly, really appreciate it. If you've listened, listened to this whole spiel, please share with anyone who you think would like any of this stuff I'm doing. Ask me questions on YouTube and TikTok. I'll do my best to be responsive and helpful. So yeah, that's about it. Go ahead and get outside, go on a walk, get some exercise, get some sleep, hug somebody you care about, read a book, Do something challenging and worthwhile. Have a lovely day.